Our Father, as we come to your word today, we come as servants and sinners to hear the summons of the King. And so, Lord, let us not take this lightly. Let us not take this with a casual or flippant attitude, but may we see our desperate, desperate need for Christ and his righteousness imputed to us in this parable today for the glory of his name in order that we may be equipped for every good work according to your will and your word. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14 today. And usually we preach through Genesis. If, you, uh, if you're not familiar with, with what we do the first Sunday of every month, the first Sunday of every month we're actually uh, going through the parables of Christ. So in that sense, we're keeping one foot in the New Testament the first Sunday of, of each month, and we have the other foot in the Old Testament as we study Genesis every other week of the month. So Matthew chapter 22 Verses 1 to 14 is what we're going to be covering today. And this is something that takes place in the last week uh, of Jesus' ministry before the crucifixion, before, uh, before his trial, before the resurrection. So we're just a few days away from that as we, as we start uh, this parable today. And in the week leading up to his, his trial, his, his death, um, his, his resurrection, Jesus taught extensively in the temple in Jerusalem. And it was at this point that Israel had already rejected Jesus. The people that God had, had chosen uh, to, to, to bring the Messiah had rejected their Messiah. And that's part of the context for what's going on here in this parable today. If Matthew's testimony is any indication of the type of stuff that Jesus was teaching on that week, and of course I, I believe that it is, then we have to understand that much of his teaching that week was focused on not only Israel's rejection of their Messiah, but also the Messiah then rejecting Israel. And it was focused on exposing the Jewish leaders. His teaching was focused on exposing the Jewish leaders as being a bunch of hypocrites, being a bunch of faithless, godless people who were just in it for the power and the influence. And so he was challenging their authority. And that's what he's going to be doing in this parable today as well. Now, if you wanted to look at the chronology, like when did this happen during the week, this happened on, he taught this on Wednesday. He taught this on Wednesday. He would be tried on Friday and crucified on Friday and die on Friday, and then he would resurrect. He would be resurrected from the grave on Sunday. And so this is less than 48 hours before his crucifixion. This is a day and a half, roughly, give or take, until the Last Supper. So that's the context for when this takes place. And while many of Jesus' parables are tricky or kind of obscure, intentionally obscure, or maybe uh, you know, designed to conceal truth rather than to reveal truth to the unbelieving Jewish leaders. Such is certainly not the case with this parable that we're going to be looking at today. Unlike the more obscure uh, parables that were designed to conceal truth, this one is very clear. What Jesus is talking about here is extremely 
plain and clear and obvious for everybody to see, and it's also very much in your face. It's very clear that it's about the urgency of the gospel, God's merciful and glorious invitation to be put in right standing before Him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it's also about the way that people respond to the message of the gospel. How some people will respond with indifference. Some people will accept it kind of on the surface, but they'll have higher priorities. And some people will have outright hostility toward the ever-gracious Creator who extends this invitation. It also... This parable also speaks of the horrible reality, the horrible danger of rejecting this invitation, rejecting the gospel, and how those who are rejecting it aren't just rejecting a bunch of words, they're rejecting God himself, and how those who reject God will spend hell in, uh, will spend eternity in hell. And that's a reality that a lot of people myself included. I'm tempted to, to, to include myself in this group. A lot of people don't like to think about hell. They don't like to think about the reality that the people that we see day in and day out sometimes will be, set, will be spending eternity in hell. And so maybe you're one of those people. Maybe, you know, most people just can't bear the reality of it, and so they don't think about it. They, they just block it out of their mind. They, they wipe it as far from their conscious mind as they possibly can. But we need to remember something that's very important, and that is that nobody in all of Scripture speaks more often, and nobody in Scripture speaks more extensively on the subject of hell than Jesus. And yet, this is why Jesus preached the gospel with urgency. This is why the gospel message is urgent. Jesus preached with urgency because people must accept this invitation, this summons to come into the kingdom of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so this parable will reflect that urgency while also showing us the wicked rebellion of fallen man, the, the, the desperate, desperate depravity that causes unregenerate man to continue in their steadfast rejection not only of the gospel, but of God. And so our parable today starts in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 3. Let's look at verses 1 to 3 together. If you have your Bible um, from out in the foyer, it's page 827 if you, if you need help getting to that. Um, verses 1 to 3 say this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the feast, but they would not come. To start off, we're going to focus on the two main characters of this parable. The two main characters are the king and the king's son. And it's pretty obvious, we can just be straight up front with it, it's pretty obvious who they represent. The king represents God the Father, the son represents Jesus himself. Have you ever noticed that the world absolutely loves royal weddings? Royal weddings have a way of drawing a lot of attention, a lot more attention than, you know, when, when I got married. You know, I didn't have a whole lot of people watching. But the, 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 the wedding of 
Prince Charles and, and Lady Diana, who would come to be known as Princess Diana, is a perfect example of, of how incredibly famous and popular these weddings become. It was called the wedding of the century, and I think if we're being honest, it, it might be called the, the wedding of the millennium. I mean, there were 600,000 people filling the streets of London, just hoping to catch even, even the slightest glimpse, even the, the briefest glimpse of this royalty as they passed by. 600,000 people filling the streets, celebrating this royal wedding, not to mention the 750 million people watching live on television at the time. There was no internet. You couldn't just look it up on YouTube back in the day. You had to watch it live. And so people were waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning to watch this royal wedding take place live on television from around the world. Numbers that were unprecedented at the time, numbers that percentage-wise have never been matched, not even close, both in our day and in, in Jesus' day, royal weddings were something that would grab everybody's attention. They gained the public's attention because they are absolutely spectacular. If you go to a wedding, you're bound to see one or two things or, or more go wrong. But not when you watch a royal, uh, royal wedding. When you watch a royal wedding, it is spectacular. It is the closest thing to a perfect wedding that you will ever see. It's like a fairy tale for... for for people who like fairy tales. But the feasts are also equally extravagant. The, the royalty, they, they don't hold back in the celebration of the wedding either. And so in this parable, just as would be the case in real life, the king desires to celebrate his son's wedding by honoring his son by throwing the mother of all wedding feasts. And it's hard to imagine the, uh, the incredible honor, the incredible privilege one would have of receiving a personal invitation from the king to come and join in the feast. I mean, you would be eating the finest foods in the world, and not just the finest foods in the world, but prepared by the best chefs that you could possibly find. Because the king wouldn't have it any other way. He's going to honor his son, and by doing so, he's, he, he's not holding back anything. He's not pulling anything back. He's going all out with both the, the wedding itself and with the, the celebration, including the feast. And who in their right mind when they receive an invitation from the king, would turn it down? Who in their right mind would turn down this opportunity for this once-in-a-lifetime event, this once-in-a-lifetime celebration? Well, we're immediately confronted with the incredible, unthinkable, incredulous reality in this parable. And that is that nobody, nobody, comes to the wedding feast. None of the people who were invited accepted the invitation to come. Now, if you, if you understand first century culture, this was unthinkable. This was an unthinkable insult to a king that you would refuse his invitation. In our day, it would be the same. You know, it would be unthinkable that nobody would show up. There might be some people who can't show up, who are unable to show up, but to think that there are just no, there's nobody who shows up is absolutely unthinkable, and rightfully so. 
it, it's, it's ridiculous if you really think about it that nobody would show up. You might think, well, what did you just invite five people, you know, and, and all of them were on their deathbed? No. Is it that they were too busy to come? No, it's not that they were too busy. Is it that they were unable? No, it's not that they were unable. So we have to ask the questions, why didn't they come? Why did nobody come to the wedding feast? It says they would not come. As simple as that. They simply would not come. Not they could not come. They would not come. And we have to be careful about inserting certain theological truths into our interpretation or our understanding of what's going on here. It might be tempting to remember that Jesus did preach that no one may come to him unless the Father who sent him draws that person to him. And we find that in John chapter 6, verse 44. And that is a theological truth. It is true. Nobody can come to Christ unless the Father draws them to him and Jesus will save everyone who is given to him by the Father. And so we could just take the easy way out here. We could just take the easy way out and chalk up their their resistance, their defiance to the fact that they were spiritually unable to come to the wedding feast. But that's not the point that Jesus is making here. Jesus is not focusing on God's will here. He's not focusing on the king's will. He's focusing on the people's will. And what he's showing us is that these people don't want to go. They, they don't come because they don't have it in their desires. They don't have it in their will to go. And apart from the grace of God drawing sinners to Christ, we have to understand that even if sinners were able to come to Christ on their own, and they're not, but even if they were, They would not come. They would not come. We have to understand that these invitations, it it represents the gospel. It represents receiving Jesus as Messiah. It's really a royal summons on behalf of the king. It's an invitation, yes, but it's, it's more like a royal summons. And to reject a royal summons is to reject the position and the power and the person of the king. And in the same way, the gospel isn't a suggestion. It's not a request. It's not something that you can add to your already, you know, extravagant life. It's not something that's optional. In the strictest sense, it is a royal summons. It's an invitation, yes, but in the strictest sense, it is a royal summons to come to Calvary, to come to the cross, and to repent of your sin, and to believe in Jesus as your Savior, and to reject that command. To reject that royal decree is not just to reject a bunch of words. It is to reject God himself. It is to reject God as your creator and sustainer. It is to reject God as the all-powerful authority over the entire universe. It is to reject God for everything that he is. It's rejecting the most important thing in the entire universe. And you would think that this king would be pretty mad because this is an insulting act toward the king. But not this king. This king is kind. This king is is merciful. He's he's gracious. He's slow to anger. 
And instead of getting angry, he decides to send more servants. Let's continue looking at verses 4 to 6. We read again, He, the king, sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Kings are not known for being extremely patient people. No, usually the king gets exactly what he wants, and the king gets exactly what he wants when he wants it, or there's a steep price to pay. But this king sees that the people, not, not that they could not come, but that they would not come, and instead of growing angry, he calmly, forbearingly, patiently sends out more servants to summon the people once again. But this time, their wickedness and their rebellion against the king, their unrighteous animosity toward the king boils over. Now we have to understand that in the context, these servants that he's sending out represent prophets from the Old Testament who were mistreated, who were killed, who were rejected, who were ignored. And look at how the people respond in verse 5. We see that they respond in three different ways. In verse 5 it says, but they paid no attention and went off. These people are completely indifferent. They just ignore this royal summons. Others, others go off to their daily business. Verse 5 says, one went off to his farm, another to his business. They're just going about their daily business. They've got other endeavors. They've got other priorities that they put above the royal summons, and so they don't go either. These people just don't care. These people are all just indifferent toward this royal summons. You may as well have been trying to sell them a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas in the age of the Internet when you can get all that information for free. The response is basically to say, why should I care? I couldn't care less. But others, others we see in verse 6, are downright hostile to the messengers, hostile to to these servants. Look at verse 6. The rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. These people are not passive about the message. They're not just indifferent toward the message. These people hate the message. These people hate the messengers because these people hate the king. And so, they seize the servants. They treat them poorly and they kill them. And they would have done the same thing to the king if they could have, but these people represented the king. So they just did it to them. And it's at this point, Jesus' listeners probably would have been thinking something like, okay, this story has been completely ridiculous up to this point. This story has been completely absurd, completely far-fetched. It's totally unrealistic for a king to offer a summons like this and for nobody to show up. But at this point, the story has gone beyond being just far-fetched, beyond being just absurd. At this point, it becomes absolutely inconceivable. At this point, it's, it's absolutely unthinkable that these people would be so indifferent or so hostile 
toward the king's royal summons. And how much more inconceivable that they would prioritize something else over the king's invitation to come and have this great food. If nothing else, you're getting great food. No, they'd they'd rather commit themselves to hard labor for the day. And how much even more preposterous that others yet would mistreat and murder the servants who represented the king. It's all ridiculous. It's all completely absurd. And that's the point. That's the point. This is so irrational. This is so foolish. It's absurd. It's not realistic, you would think, because it's so illogical. But that is the point. Because it's the same with the gospel. If you've been faithful to Christ in sharing the gospel, if you've been faithful with the Great Commission and bringing the gospel message, preaching the gospel message to people, you know this stuff. You've seen all this happen with your own eyes. You've seen people respond to the gospel with indifference. You've seen people respond to the gospel by saying, I've got other things to do. I don't have time for God. And you've seen people respond with hostility. And you've seen it with your own eyes. You've seen it with your own eyes. And, and you, you get it. You understand how ridiculous it is because you know how urgent. You know how desperately important it is that somebody accept this invitation, receive this royal summons. And so you understand that it's unthinkable that anyone could be passive or indifferent or hostile toward those who proclaim it. Because to reject the gospel isn't just to reject a bunch of words. Yes, it's to reject God himself, but it is also to reject a joy-saturated existence. It is to reject the purpose for which God has created them. It is to forfeit all forgiveness that God offers. He offers complete forgiveness, and it is to forfeit that opportunity. It is to pass on all that is truly beautiful. It is to take a pass on all that is truly glorious, everything that's really worth celebrating. It's, it's to reject everything worthy of wonder. It is to reject God himself. And the tragedy is that it is just, it's so ridiculous. It's, it's illogical. It's irrational. It is completely foolish to defy and to deny the King of all glory, the Lord of all heaven and all earth. And yet that is unregenerate man's response to the gospel. Now it is entirely true that no one may come to Christ unless they are drawn by the Father. But the point that Jesus is making here is the willful refusal of man to honor and glorify Christ as Messiah. And it seems acceptable to man to just be indifferent, to just take a pass and reject the gospel. It seems right to man to reject it, but there is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. And that way is autonomy. That way 
is independence from God, not needing God, not wanting God. That way is self-sufficiency. That way is doing what seems right in one's own eyes, regardless of what God's Word might say about it. But its end is the way to death. God is patient. Praise the Lord, right? God is patient. Hallelujah, right? But it is the height of stupidity to test God's patience. And so the king finally reaches the end of his patience. Let's look at verse 7 together. Verse 7 says, The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. These people have rejected the king's invitation, and, and thereby they have rejected and defied the king. And finally, their resistance has consequences as the king's wrath is fully unleashed against them. And for what? Because they, they had better things to do? Because they didn't care? Because they hated the king? Whatever their excuses may have been. Luke tells us that they came up with all kinds of excuses. One guy says, I just recently bought a field. I need to go out and look at my field. It's ridiculous. You you laugh because it is ridiculous, but that's the thing. People make all kinds of excuses, but those excuses are absolutely worthless. And likewise, those who reject the gospel have no legitimate excuse they will rightly incur God's wrath. Maybe they'll say they, they just don't care about spiritual truth. Or they'll say, you know, I've, I've got other you know, pursuits, other endeavors that I've got to chase after. Or they're just downright hostile toward God and His people. And they all have the same fate. Regardless of what their excuse might be, regardless of what their feelings might be, they all have the same fate. And it is God's perfect justice every human life this is an important principle every human life however will glorify god and it's important that we realize that every single human life will glorify god every human life will ultimately be a testimony to the glory of god's mercy and grace or it will be a testimony to the glory of god's perfect righteous judgment What about you? What will your life be a testimony to? God's mercy and grace or His justice? Let's look at verses 8 to 10. Then he, the king, said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This king's will will not be thwarted. This king will not be denied. We, we see the persistence of the king here. He will not be denied. His son will be honored. His son will be exalted. And his will will not be thwarted. Sure, his messengers might be killed. But what does he do? Does he just give up? No, he raises up more. He raises up more servants because his son 
will be honored. And note what the king says of those who have rejected the invitation. Look at verse 8 with me. At the end of the verse, he says this, but those invited were not worthy. Wow. They, they were not worthy. That's kind of scary. If, if you realize that we're talking about the gospel here, it, it's kind of scary if you understand that there are people who God would say are, are not worthy. So why is it that they were not worthy? Is it because they weren't good enough? Is it because they just didn't do enough good deeds or enough good things or say enough kind words to people while they were on earth? Is it because they were immoral? Maybe they, they, they did all kinds of things to violate God's law. No and no. It's not because they weren't good enough. It's not because they were immoral. No, they weren't worthy because they wouldn't accept the invitation. They weren't worthy because they wouldn't accept the invitation. And conversely then, the implication is that had they accepted the invitation, had they accepted this royal summons, they would have been worthy of it. Do you see the difference? There's a very important difference here. In verse 10, we see that the servants gather both good and bad people. So it has nothing to do with being good or bad. This isn't moralism. The principle here is that the one thing that makes you worthy of partaking of this feast is your acceptance of the call. Consider this scenario. Let's say that you have a friend who is in prison and they have been sentenced to die. And so you go to them and you say, I've got some really good news for you. And, and they're thinking, well, are you going to get me out of this or what? And you say to them, be a good person. Be a good person. What kind of news is that? That's not going to change their sentence. That's not going to change the fact that they have been sentenced to die. No, that is ab absolutely cruel for you to go and pretend like you've got good news to just be a good person when they are going to die. No, this isn't moralism. We're talking about a full pardon here. The gospel is a full pardon. And the thing that makes somebody worthy of a full pardon is accepting it. Is accepting it. In the same way, what makes a person worthy of heaven isn't how many good or bad deeds they've done. It's not how many random acts of kindness they've done. Those things are great, but they don't get you into heaven. It's not how moral or immoral they were or weren't. No, the thing that makes a person worthy of heaven is accepting the gospel, coming to the cross, repenting of your sin, and believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In verse 10, look at verse 10. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And, and if, if I was telling the story here, or maybe if you were telling the story here, maybe your temptation would be to say, the end. Because now we've got a happy ending here, and it's just like the fairy tale that it started out as. But no, it doesn't end here. It doesn't end here. We see that, yes, the king's son is going to be honored and exalted and, and glorified. And it seems like a good place to end the parable. But then Jesus issues a very strict, stern warning about what you wear to the feast. What you wear to the feast. So let's continue looking at verses 11 to 13. But when the king came in to look at the guests, 
he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so what we see here in in this story is that the, the, the wedding feast is, is proceeding, it's going forth, it's going to happen, and as the king looks out over his guests, he sees somebody who isn't wearing one of his garments, he's wearing his own garments. And you'd imagine that not wearing the king's garments, but wearing his own garments would cause him to stand out like a, white, like a black sheep standing among white sheep, or maybe like a goat among sheep. All these people, they were good, they were, they were bad They're from all walks of life. They were all given a wedding garment for this feast. But this man isn't wearing the king's wedding garment. This man is wearing his own clothes to the wedding feast. And we have to understand that this garment represents more than just a garment. This, This garment is actually deeply symbolic, and it's very important that we understand what this garment represents, what it symbolizes, what it's a a picture of. What does it represent? It represents the very righteousness of Christ Himself, which is freely given, which is freely imputed. It is transferred from Him to His people so that they would be clothed in His righteousness rather than their own righteousness. And and everybody who comes to the cross, who repents of their sin, who believes in Jesus Christ, receives this righteousness. In the story, it would be people who receive the King's garment. We just sung about this a few minutes ago in one of the songs that we sang, the Solid Rock, right? Dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We're going to sing about it for our final song. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. We must be clothed in Christ's righteousness. The alternative is to be dressed in your own goodness, which is no goodness at all. Or to be dressed in your own sense of righteousness, which God perceives to be filthy rags. Unacceptable, unworthy of being in His glorious, holy, and majestic presence. And so the king sees this man, he goes up to the man, and he basically says, well, what are you you doing here? How did you get in here? How did you get in here wearing that? And you'd think that the man might have a million different excuses. Oh, it wasn't offered to me. Oh, yes, it was. Well, I I, I forgot. I, I just got in. No, you didn't. No, that's not the way it happened. He's speechless. He's speechless. He has absolutely nothing to say. Suddenly he realizes that his own garments aren't clean enough to be worn in the king's presence, and he has nothing that he can say about it. Paul warns of the day when every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. That's from Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And some people think, you know, I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and I'll get right with God when I stand before Him. That is not 
going to happen, friends. Nobody is going to get right before God after they die. The world will stand in silence in their judgment before him. The Bible clearly teaches that the mouths of sinners will be silenced on that day. When you stand before the God who has commanded you to come to the cross and to repent and to believe in Christ and to glorify Christ, you will stand before a God who knows every thought you've ever had and who knows every deed you have ever done. There will be nothing for you to say. There will be no excuses. There will be only silence. And so furious, the king throws the man out into the outer darkness. That was the consequence of refusing to be clothed in the king's garments. Likewise, to refuse the gospel message is to refuse to be clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. And that will result in many being cast out into hell, away from the light. They're cast into the the outer darkness. Remember what Jesus said, people hate the light because they love the dark. They love the dark because they hate the light. And so God gives them what they wanted. He casts them into the outer darkness, right where they would prefer to be. Friends, the gospel is not so much an invitation as it is a royal summons, it is a, as it is a command to repent and believe in Christ. It is a divine decree that states that you must come before God clothed in God's own righteousness and Christ's own righteousness imputed to you if you are to stand without fault, without blemish, without sin before Him, without guilt, without condemnation. To come to Him in your own goodness, which is no goodness at all, is to be an intruder in His courtroom. So the question that you might be asking is, So how can one be clothed in the righteousness of Christ? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So make your calling and election sure. Come to the cross. Come and receive the forgiveness that God has offered to all who will come to the cross and repent and believe. Come and trade your, un, your, your filthy rags, your unrighteous rags for the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to you. There is an urgency because you don't know that you'll be around tomorrow. You don't know, nobody knows when they're going to die. And the urgency is found in the fact that you must accept this invitation on this side of glory. You can't stand before God and try to accept it there. It will be too late. Jesus ends this parable with a, with a line that many find confusing. Let's look at verse 14 together. He says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Wow. What does that mean? Many are called, few are chosen. What, what could Jesus possibly be saying there? I'll give you the nutshell answer and then I'll expound on it a little bit. Basically, it means that God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over salvation. But we have to understand that the way that this is worded tells us that the doctrine of election doesn't nullify the need for evangelism. Yes, only those who are chosen, only the elect will go to heaven. But that doesn't mean that we don't go forward and proclaim the message. 
It doesn't nullify our need to be faithful to the Great Commission. We have to understand that there are two types of calls. When you see the word call, you've you got to understand there, there are two senses in which that word is used, and they are similar, but they're, they're very different. The first is the inward calling of God. That's called the effectual calling of God. That's the call that Paul refers to in Romans 8.28, for example, when he says God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's the concept that we find in John chapter 6, verse 44, where Jesus says, no man may come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to me. And that word draw doesn't mean lull or woo or entice. That's the way that we look at the word draw in our language, but in the Greek language, it's a word which indicates force. For example, looking at another way that John used the word, when Peter and the disciples, after, after Jesus has been, has been uh, raised from the dead, but they don't know it yet, they're out fishing, and they, they catch nothing all night, and so Jesus is on the shore, and he says, throw your nets out on, on the other side, and they do, and they catch so many fish that they struggle to draw, same word, draw the fish into the boat. They're not saying, here, fishy, fishy, come on, come on up here. No, they are pulling with all their might. So this is the doctrine of the effectual calling of God. This is the calling of God which opens the eyes of sinners, opens the eyes of their hearts to behold the glory and the goodness and the majesty of Christ and to receive forgiveness. It's something that man cannot do for himself. It's something that man cannot do for others. It is the inward call of God. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here when he says many are called. Jesus is talking about the outward or the general calling, which is done by man. This is the call of the gospel that goes forth to all people. Many hear it, but few respond. You, you, could, you could kind of summarize what Jesus said there just like that. Many hear the gospel, many hear the call of, of the, the gospel but few respond. So the first half of this verse, for many are called, the first half is talking about us. It's talking about the general call that's extended to all that God's people are commanded to deliver, to preach. This is the call of the gospel, to bring the gospel to all people, to proclaim the need to receive Christ's righteousness through repentance and faith in Christ. The second half, but few are chosen. That's God's work. That's God's work. He chooses. He elects. He draws sinners to Christ. And Jesus promised that whoever the Father gives to him, he will save. He will raise them up on the last day. He would not lose them. He would not cast them out. The point is that God is sovereign over salvation but that doesn't nullify our need for evangelism, and it doesn't nullify man's responsibility to accept the gospel. The doctrine of election is mysterious to a degree. It's not uh, explained in full detail. We can't fully understand it, but we know that God is good, and we know that God is just, and we know that God is righteous. We know that whoever believes the gospel, therefore, is chosen by God. And those who are called by man and yet reject the invitation do so willfully. It's in accordance with their own will. 
They wouldn't want it any other way. They're indifferent to it, or they have priorities that they place above it, or they are hostile toward it, and thus their exclusion from the kingdom is their choice, and it is perfectly just. In closing, I just ask you to see the urgency that's reflected in this parable. Reflect the, see, see the urgency not only reflected in, in the need for people to believe the gospel, but also the urgency of taking this message and proclaiming it to people who are separated from God. Proclaiming this divine summons to the world. That's our responsibility. God has ordained that that is our responsibility as his people. We're the servants in this parable. And you see that not a single servant in here is apprehensive. Not a single servant in here is defiant of this order. Friends, there is an urgency. There is an urgency to bring the gospel to the nations. And so may we do this work by God's power in obedience to him, trusting the results with God. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the reality of of all this. We're humbled that you would invite us to the cross to repent and to believe in your Son. We're humbled that you would have such an important work that you would place in our hands. And so, Father, we ask that we would do this by your power, that you would convict us, that you would open doors, that you would give us opportunities to present the glorious invitation of the gospel. God, we trust in your goodness. We trust in your sovereignty. We trust in you for the results. But let us, Lord, lead us to being faithful to the Great Commission. Lead us to being obedient to Christ. We know, Lord, that we were purchased at a, at a high cost that we never could have afforded, that we never could have paid. We were bought and paid for with Christ's own blood. And so we ask, Lord, that we would be willing, that we would be obedient, and that you would convict us and teach us to do this for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.